for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blasey, and this is episode number 103. So today is going to be just Justin and I. And uh, we catch up. Justin hasn't been on a podcast for a while. Uh, we spend the first, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes catching up. So if you guys don't want to hear about that, um, you can scroll ahead to about the 20 minute mark, I believe. And then uh, we do start a Q&A. We had a lot of listeners submitted questions that people wanted us to answer. So we get to that in today's podcast. So today we are hot, and I have a special guest on today, everybody. A guest that you haven't heard his voice in so many weeks, and we are happy to have him back, the co-host of the Fall Podcast, Justin Fabian. Let's give him a round of applause. Hey, he's back. Here I am. What's up, man? (laughs) Oh, I wish I could say nothing, but there's... (laughs) Seems to be a lot going on for what's supposed to be the off season. I feel like uh, I feel like I haven't. I, I literally haven't talked to you. This is the first time I've talked to you, and I feel like three months. I know. I mean, it's you were at SCI, and I was at a couple other shows, and like I know you saw Charlie Daniels uh, talk to some big wigs, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's about all I know about your travels and. Uh, I mean, I don't even think I responded to some of those Snapchats, but I was just like, oh, he's, he's alive. He's okay. Well, and that's, <laughs> I'll see you when I get back. Exactly. And that's the thing. Like, I don't know when I'm thinking about like reaching out to you and just saying, Hey, what's up? It's you're busy 24 seven when you're on the road. I mean, you're constantly getting content for base map and helping people out in the booth, you know, selling memberships and, and yep. just educating people on base map and why they should be going with base map you know so it's like one of those things it's i'm almost 
like I'd rather not just you know put another wrench in the spokes like uh, I don't want him to think about he has to get back to me just like do your thing and and we'll get back to it once uh you know once the dust settles and you get back home I mean yeah. so that's where my head was at <laughs> yeah that's that's what it feels like man it's I feel like the wily e. coyote watching the roadrunner go by at 300 <laughs> miles an hour just dust cloud yep somebody else asked me and I I think I said uh yeah, it was my dad. He called me on my birthday last week, and he said, "How you doing? I haven't heard from you in a while." I said, "I, I'm good. What's up?" He's like, "Oh, nothing. Happy birthday." And I was like, "Oh, is that today?" <laughs> I did wish you a happy birthday, though. I said, "I, yeah, you did." I got to say, I think you were actually the first. Like, I, I know you were probably up early with Peyton, so I, I looked over from the bedside in uh, Salt Lake City. And you were the first one to, to say happy birthday. Well, I try Thank I you. try to be that guy. I like to be the first guy. But let's be honest, though. My day was half over when you got up, though, because you're four hours behind or three hours behind me. So, <laughs> Yeah, out there, I think it was – yeah, out there, it would have been two hours behind two you. Two hours? Yeah. Okay. Enough difference. Enough of a difference yep. anyway. Well, good deal. So you're back uh, for a little bit yep, anyway. Finally back. Good deal. And so well, how – standby. Let's put it that yeah. way. You're you're on call, but you know you could get yeah <laughs> you could get you could leave tomorrow. Yes. So how was the shows? I mean, could you give us a brief overview of the shows and and base map and and kind of how everything went? Was everything expected? Like, you know, up to your guys' expectations and and how did it go for you? Uh, yeah, overall it went really well. Um, it started with Portland, Oregon, and then Salt Lake City. Those were back-to-back, so the Pacific Northwest Sportsman Show and then on down to uh, the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo, where I actually met Basemap last year for the first time. But Portland Show was really good, just in comparison. And maybe this is just me being with an exhibitor this year compared to last year, just kicking tires. But it seemed like the Salt Lake Show was slower than it should have been, I just, just, just general traffic-wise. I don't think there was as many people as last year. And, you know, it's not to say, like, I'm not saying that because we didn't do very good in sales. We kicked ass in sales, really, but it just seemed like the traffic wasn't the same last year. And like I said, maybe because last year was my first time and I was kind of just in awe. <laughs> but it was a good pace. We had a lot of help. We had a bunch of our ambassadors there and a good part of our marketing team and some of our sales team was there. And it was it was a constant flow of, of people in and out of the booth, either buying base map or asking about it. And I don't know, from a... From a competitor standpoint, it felt good to be in eyesight of Onyx. So they had they had a booth one row over from us, and it was it was wide open view back and forth. Um, we could literally see people go from their booth to us, or else from us to them, and then come back to us with their credit card. <laughs> so it fun. was a little. It was kind of gratifying, but at the same time, it's you know we're not there to make them to make them feel insignificant but i mean it is it's free market economy right i mean we're here to provide competition for the first time and right i think it's pretty apparent that that we're here to to stay and well we came out of that show with just a lot of buzz a lot of traction so awesome kind of still riding that wave right now and i mean you know how it goes you you kind of get on the high and then you start cranking out good content and you're editing faster and like Every time you push record on the camera, you know that it's just it's just money. You know, it's everything just rolls for sure. So it's oh yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. 
<laughs> yep. Good deal, man. That's a good feeling for sure. You know, and it's funny you say about yeah. the Salt Lake show, you feel was kind of slow. And honestly, I've never been to that show, but, you know, I follow a lot of people that go to that show. And I saw yeah. a lot of pictures from that show on social media while it was going on. And I honestly, from an outsider's perspective, just from the pictures, it didn't seem like there was a lot of people there. I actually had that feeling myself. Um, and I didn't know if yeah. it was, you know, if that was just the norm or, or, or what, but I, I felt like the same way and I've, you know, I've never even attended that show either. No. And I mean, we were right, we were in a prime spot too. Um, we were right in front of the mountain ops booth, uh, hush and mountain ops were, were right next to each other. And between the two of them, they had the entire wall of one of the wings I mean, they between the two of them, they had a space the same size as Mossback did with all their mounts and everything. And I mean, we had we were in a high traffic area. There's no doubt about it. And I mean, even Cameron Haynes was up on the mountain op stage doing just live Q and A's. And I mean, I would have thought people would have been lined out to the door for that. And it was a small crowd. I bet you of maybe about a hundred people, 150 people. Really? Yeah. I mean, there was there was just as many people like at the uh, at the EXO, uh, EXO PAX, on Saturday, no, it was Friday night, uh, they were giving away free beer. They had two kegs in their booth, and they were giving away free beer from 5 o'clock until the show closed. Talk about a <laughs> talk about a good way to get people in your booth. I was going to say, that's fun there. That's a, that's a good, fashion, old-fashioned yeah. fun time. Yep. But <laughs> all in all, I just, yeah, there's it didn't draw the crowd that I would have expected. I mean... I, I don't like I said I don't know if it was me just being an exhibitor this year, but I don't know. I didn't go to the banquet either, so I didn't really see everybody in one room. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's good, man. Like I said, that's that's cool for you guys, and and I'm glad you guys are trending up and expectations are where they're supposed to be, and you guys are meeting them. Yep. So that's cool. But I do want to like briefly touch on you talked about me going to Reno, and I don't know if I told you, but you know, well, you do know, you know, Charlie Daniels was there playing. I mean, I was front row getting hit with sweat, you know, from old Chucky D there. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, devil went down to Georgia front row. Oh man. I mean, (laughs) I, I, it was an unbelievable experience. And that guy, he's, he's an older guy now, but man, can he still rock it? I mean, it was sweet. So that was that was pretty cool. And and Reno alone. I mean, I'm pretty sure Lee and I were the youngest people in Reno. I'm almost positive. Like I've never <laughs> been to Reno, never been to Vegas, but everybody was telling us that Reno is like, you know, here you hear Reno is the mini Vegas or whatever. And honestly, Reno yeah. is like all old people. <laughs> That's just what it is. I mean, there's old people all over. And uh, it was fun, though. I mean, we got a workout in, so that was cool. We got to visit a CrossFit gym there. And actually, come to find out, the the guy that owns it is from Alpena, Michigan, which is, is or no, not Alpena, Allegan. He's from Allegan, which is real close to me. And he actually used to work out a couple times at Lee's old gym in Grand Rapids. So that was kind of freaky, kind of weird. Oh, weird. Small, small world. But uh, that was neat. Yeah. Got to got to interview uh, Donald Trump Jr. for a solid ten seconds, so that was cool. That was fun. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. No, I was gonna 
I was going to transition your your ten second interview to the total watch time on your Hambino episode. Oh man, I don't know what I don't even know what the total. I mean, I know you have access to that, but I just pulled it up here, and as of seven thirty five Central Time on Sunday night, you are at thirty thousand one hundred and seventy eight views. Sure, on just that episode. Sure, I didn't even know that. Last That's time I nuts. checked was like Friday, and I can't even remember what it was at. I want to say, I don't think it was quite to twenty five thousand views, but good deal. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great deal. It's three hundred and forty nine thumbs up and eleven haters. Well, you know those haters. You know who they are, right? Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll just I leave do. it there. I think I do. <laughs> haters. Haters gonna hate. Uh, there's a guy on there that he commented in there. I think. I think. I think it was on that video, or maybe it was on Lee's from last week. And he was like, "The amount of advertisements in this video is just unbelievable. I'm never gonna watch any of these people's videos again." And I'm like, "Sorry about your bad luck, there, guy." But uh, um, I mean, we're trying to run a business as well, and we don't get to really dictate how many advertisements are in it. So. You know, yeah. I mean, sorry about your I'm bad I guess it was probably Lee's just because that was an episode from Rival Wild and you guys had your your plugs in there. Yeah. I think like three, I think three ads ran on yours on the Hambino episode. I gotcha. Yeah, we ended up taking the intro and billboards out of Lee's. So those those old Rival Wild, you won't, you won't see the intro and in, in, uh, billboards. So just to get right to the content and everything, but. Yeah, I mean Lee's is even his 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 went up on Thursday and that's got what probably thirteen thousand views or something like that, maybe fifteen. That one's doing really well as well. Doing really well as well, does that make sense? Really well as well. Yeah, thirteen thousand seven ninety five. Nice. I mean that's only been up for four days, so three days. So that's good. Yeah. The buzz is I mean the Hambino episode really really sparked a lot of new interest i think and it was almost like it was the the i wouldn't say the catalyst but it it was something that people there was a lot of buzz around it you know um and it got a lot of people there i think in seven days i think we got 730 some new subscribers just in seven days after we launched it so i i mean i'm super grateful for everybody doing that and i'm glad everybody's liking the content and trying to ride a high right now and just keep this train rolling man yeah, you got you got more in a week than all of base map YouTube has in total. <laughs> oh, you'll catch on though. You will. Hey, speaking of that, anybody listening, go over to base map YouTube, hit subscribe. Appreciate it. Thanks. There, there you go. Shameless plug. <laughs> and Humanimal. <laughs> Check out the Humanimal page. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Please do both. I posted a thing on Instagram when I was watching your episode the other day and I had like seven people. DM me and say, I just saw that, or I watched it three times yesterday, or like, do you know that guy? Or like asking me questions about it. Like people I had no idea that knew who the Kiefer brothers were or, or who you, who you were, or what Humanimal was were like, yep, those guys are awesome. I, I was like, you guys, you, you ever watch Dropped? You ever watch Rival Wild? Like same deal, <laughs> just digital. They're all digital. Yeah. Now. Everything's, yep. that's cool producing though. stuff for like 15 years. Yeah, that's cool. I don't know if I told you. I had a guy, we had a guy reach out and direct message us and actually say that he, after, you know, I shot the deer and he was running away and 
and you know the celebration he said he literally started crying because it like meant so much to him like just to see the raw emotion um coming out of what you know Casey and I were doing and and it, he was like it yeah. felt like I was literally right there in the tree with you so and I've had a lot yeah. I've had a lot of people say that not that they were crying he was the only one that but just like they were super appreciative of the emotion that it showed and and uh it was just it it kind of they said that it took them back to like how it used to be almost and I was like oh well that's that's really cool to hear because you know I lived it but then I relived it with the video and I thought it was really good don't get me wrong but I don't know why I guess I didn't take that impact from it like they did I I have no idea why right I can't answer that I guess so yeah that's kind of the same reaction I got to that one that I killed last year from uh, my first year at Midwest Whitetail, the one yep. I killed on the ground. Yep. I don't know. That, that, you're in the moment. Like, that, that's your time. And then, obviously, as a producer, if you can get someone to have that kind of reaction to it, I mean, that's obviously a success. So you, For you sure. put them right there. For sure. It really, it, it really was. I mean, and like I said, I appreciate everybody's feedback and, and everything like that. It's, it's been pretty cool. So, well, I I know we have been chuckling along here a little much, and I did want to get to a couple things here. Um, one thing, one last thing before we get into what we wanted to do today, and just to kind of preempt what we're doing, is we actually reached out and, and asked people for some questions, kind of a Q&A, and we've been wanting to do one. And so I've got a list of questions we're going to cover, and there, it's a wide variety. I mean, there's shed hunting stuff in there, there's gear stuff, and off-season stuff, um, you know, stands, that kind of stuff. Like, we'll get into that here in a hot second. But one last thing I want to ask you about is I heard some scuttle from you that you were saying that uh, you've been looking to get into a target bow. So why uh, why the new interest? Um, I don't know, a lot of reasons. Like, I feel like deer season or, or hunting season in general, like I don't touch my bow until I kind of feel like I better get the dust off, you know, and – I don't know. I've gotten into, I don't know, just the arrow building a little bit and, you know, fletching my arrows and, you know, researching front and center and trying to improve just overall accuracy on my hunting bow. And I, I just really think that, I don't know, this is going to sound like conceited, but I just, I always have this attention to detail when I learn something new. And I always feel like the very first time I take it all in is when I'm going to be the best at it. And I love shooting my bow. I just, I want to do it more than just in hunting season. So I really want to see what I can do with a target bow that's got, you know, a, a magnifier in the sight and what I'm shooting for points and just focus on all the details that are going to put that arrow where I intend it to go. You know, whether it's, I'm not saying it's going to be for money, but I just think it'd be cool to, to kind of play with that and try to keep, keep things in tune during the off seasons and, whether it be 3D or, you know, a 300 or a five-spot league or something, just something to play with. Actually, the Iowa Deer Classic is next weekend, and I fully intend to shoot the 3D tournament in that and see what happens with my hunting bow. <laughs> nice. Go up there and uh, just just kill it, man. Just beat everybody with your hunting bow. <laughs> I mean, there's, I think there's a class for it. So it's not like I'll be competing against other target archers, you know. I'll be able to compete against other people with hunting bows and, 
you know, and fix pins or sliders or whatever. But I got to get over the price of a target bow before uh-huh. I decide to do it because it's <laughs> crazy. And that's just for the bow. Like it's double. I know. It's double what a hunting bow is. And then you got to get the magnifier sights and then you got to get you know the stabilizers and then you got to get the arrows and the points yeah. and uh, oh yeah it's just <laughs> it's just a whole another expense and I'm like no nah, not for me <laughs> yep first thing I would start with is that uh America's best bowstring oh so yeah let's plug Pla- right there to Bryant platinum, <laughs> platinum series get them Platinum series, yep. Yeah, go get your Platinum series. We actually, on the Humanimal website, if you guys go there, we have a code for America's Best Bowstring. So if you guys want a code, go to Humanimal. or I think it's imhumanimal.com, and go to the, I think it's Partners tab, you'll find it. Hit America's Best Bowstrings, and there's a code there so you guys can get a discount on your strings. So go do that and go buy some strings. Also available in the descriptions of every one of the Humanimal Season 19 videos on YouTube. Yes, yep. So if you like, if you haven't seen the Hambino episode, go check it out. And if you go in the description, all of our codes for our partners are in there. The ABB one, click on that, takes you right to it, lets you know. Or actually, it's listed out right there. So you just go to America's Best Bowstrings, yep. order your string, and then the little code, type in your little code there, and uh, get you a little discount. So do that. <laughs> Shameless plug. There it is. Go. <laughs> well, let's get into this thing, man. We've been talking too long. People have already shut us off, so we only, we've only got about three people listening now. So let's get into this. Yeah, and probably. I'm, yeah. I'm going to start off the first question. Now, these were all listener-submitted questions, whether they're through Facebook or Instagram or, or just direct message. So the first one is a hand release versus wrist strap release. So... Basically, I think what the guy's asking is, do you use a you know a four finger hand release or a wrist strap, and and why basically? So, do you want to start this off? Sure, um, I use a wrist strap. Um, to me, it's it's just more secure. It's constant connection. Like I'm not going to worry about dropping it. And uh, to be honest, I've never practiced with any kind of a hinge release or a back tension. Uh, actually years ago, Aaron, you gave me a four finger release with a thumb button on it. And that thing cost me probably 145 inch eight point in Illinois six years ago. <laughs> I remember I, that. I had it clipped onto my, <laughs> onto my D loop and the deer's coming in. I reach over and grab it and my forearm hit the button and the release fell to the ground into the black hole of death. And that, that buck came in at 27 yards and I got a shot off at him with, my fingers pulling 70 pounds on a compound and he's dead now, but it wasn't because of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So I, I'm, I'm a little gun shy of a, of a four finger. Yep. So me, I'm kind of, I'm the same way. I, I shoot a wrist strap and I have forever, uh, back about four or five years ago, I started shooting a, a four finger thumb button, a Scott, and I really like it. It's comfortable in the backyard practicing out of the tree stand or on the ground. I can shoot it all day. I, sh- I shot uh, the Total Archer Challenge with it last year. Did really well. But for some odd reason, when I get into a hunting scenario, uh, my head is just not in it. I feel like my head is overtaking the thought like, 
you know, when you get into the moment of, the tr- moment of truth, like muscle memory, I guess you could say, doesn't take over, and I feel yeah. really weird. So I, I have more control, I feel like, and more confidence with a with a you know a strap release, a wrist strap. So that's why I do that. And yep. um, I don't know, I like it a lot. I, I'm I'm accurate with it. It's comfortable. Um, I actually shoot a True Fire uh, hardcore f- buckle foldback, and I really like that because it folds back against my uh, wrist, so it's out of the way. It doesn't clang on anything. It you know I can wear it, and it's not even like I'm wearing anything really. And uh, I don't know. It's just trusty. I, I really like it. I've been shooting it for probably seven years now, and it's killed a lot of deer for me. So. Um, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with it. It's not that I don't like hand releases and they're not, you know, good, whether it's a hinge or a a back tension, like you said, or a four finger. It's just that I I just have more confidence in a wrist strap. Yeah. I I feel the same. It's, it's like your favorite fishing lure. You just have that feeling every time you tie it on and that's, what's going to catch you the fish. It's for me, the wrist strap is having that confidence, you know, just takes one of those things out of my mind. That's going to go wrong. I agree, 100%. So let's move on to the next one, and this one is actually submitted by Mark. Hey, Mark, how you doing? <laughs> Thanks for submitting your question. <laughs> uh, he says, mobile or set stands? Mobile stands versus set stands. What you know? What what do you prefer? So I'll start this one, I guess, just because you did the last one. Um, I'm a set stand guy, and... Well, I guess I could say it's kind of a hybrid. I, I don't know. So what I like to do is I like to to preset stands, but I also have a what you you would call a run and gun stand. So it's it's always it's never in a tree. It's always at my disposal whenever I need it. I'll keep it in my truck a lot of times. But um, what I like to do is I like to set my set stands because I've got a good idea where everything is moving and you know past history with the farms that I'm hunting. And from there, I will adjust from there. If if it's not the same movement that it had been in the past years, I will either take that stand down and move it, or I will do a run and gun for a couple days. But the thing is, is I'm not full mobile. Um, my thing here in Michigan is when I'm going in, I want to be, I just want to be so quiet and. I just feel like I'm trying. I'm trying to get real, real tight to either a bedding area or, you know, a staging area or something. I really want to get in tight, and I don't want to be clanging around and and banging things. So, I just like to have those, you know, stands placed already. But I have done a lot of running guns, a lot of hanging bangs, whatever you want to call them. My Iowa deer this last year, I did that, you know. But that was the case of hang an observation, you know, watch for a couple of days, see what they do and then move in. And that's how we ultimately got that one done. So that's kind of where I stand on that. Not that I don't like running a gun and hanging bang. We, you know, we've been really successful doing hanging bangs, but we just don't do it exclusively. It's, you know, we like to sit back and, and, and try to figure things out and then move in. So that's kind of my take yeah. on it. And I know you are more of a, a run and gun guy. So I think this will be a good mix here. Yeah, and that's that's exactly right. I my answer to this question is uh, mobile setup. Uh, number one, because I don't want to dump thousands of dollars on multiple sets, uh, and then maybe that's a stretch. But you know, you get four or five sets; they're going to be permanent. You're going to have 
between sticks and, and the stand or, you know, whatever. You're going to have, I would say, six to a thousand, six hundred to a thousand dollars into those stands, and I'm kind of cheap. So I'd, I'd rather not do that. But um, for me, it's about the fact that I'm, I'm hunting mainly public land right now and primarily public land. So uh, there's no need for me to have to have multiple sets. And if I did, I wouldn't be leaving them out there in the first place because they would just get stolen. Right. So I focused on the weight and I've got my setup down, even even self-filming. Like I, I carry in all the, the, the stuff, the camera arm, the base, which don't get me wrong, at 5 o'clock in the morning, I'm saying I'm done. I'm never going to do this again. But I, I take everything in and out, almost every set. So unless I know I'm going back to that exact same tree the next morning or you know later that night, I generally take it all out every time. And I pack it back in the next time. If I had private land or if I had a lease, I would probably not be that way. I'd probably have some key stands that are always in place. But then I I would probably still default to, to the run and gun or hang and bang like you guys call it. And just have those other pieces set as backups. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say also is like if I, you know, I don't hunt public land. You know, I haven't had to really hunt public land, you know, ever really. And I think if I did hunt public land, I would get into some more hanging bangs like all the time, you know, go in and hang it, take it down. And not that I'm against it, but with the private land, I've I've hunted all my private lands for multiple years and the historical patterns on them are pretty, pretty much the same. I mean, you'll get, you'll get bucks that, you know, year after year have different mentalities and you just adjust from there. But I like the 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 pre-work into trying to figure that deer out and then go from there. Um, and it's a perfect example. I mean, you're a mobile guy. I'm more of a set stand. But if I need to move, I will. And it shows like the last yeah. couple of years, you and I have both been really successful on doing both methods. You know, so it's, it's not like there's a right or wrong way of doing it, really. No, no, not at all. And I agree with you a hundred percent. If, if it's, if it is private property and, um, you know, you can't deny, you know, the historical use like you're talking about. I mean, big deer use the same areas every year, every generation. Um, you know, you're going to consistently see those, like when those three and four year olds get really aggressive and those bigger, older, like six, five, six year old bucks kind of get called out you know, they're going to get isolated and they tend to go to the same places. So it's, whether it's travel or isolation, that that history usually doesn't change much. So you're pretty safe in setting up a permanent stand in those places. For sure. Yep. All right. So moving on. So next one, this one's, this one's kind of a neat one. Uh, this is actually a guy by the name of Jason sent this one in. So he said, do you pee out of the tree stand? um i do yeah i'm i'm not worried about that personally uh i could care less and in my opinion it's 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 natural in a way yes and it, it does have obviously an odor but for me like just for knowing deer i don't want to say like i do but i feel like i know whitetails pretty well like their body language and how they act and react for me, if, if that deer can't associate that smell to a specific source or a specific danger, they don't give a crap about it. Like, it's just another pile of piss in the woods. 
<laughs> if they <laughs> that's I mean that that's my opinion. I mean I've I've pissed off the stand, I I dip and I put I spit off the stand like smells like wintergreen and piss under my stand for the most part in November. Like <laughs> I I'm not I worried it. about it. I love it. And I have I have I don't have anything that's ever happened to me that makes me think, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or that deer would have came in if I didn't do that. Like, I, I cannot think of one instance where that's the case. Yep. So I just I do it. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny that this guy asked this because uh, I actually I will pee out of the stand as well. I I, I do it a little different because I'm so. <laughs> I guess you could say a little different. Uh, I'm so conscious of sound, like, you know, the pee hitting the ground from 20 feet up. It could be loud. So I try to make it hit like a yeah. crotch of a tree or a crotch of the tree or let it, you yeah. know, go down the side of the tree. But, uh, you know, a couple years ago, I actually, you know, just want to do an experiment with a mock scrape. And I think what had happened was uh, it was here in Michigan and I didn't have, I want to start a mock scrape and I didn't have any scent with me. So I'm like, oh, you know what? I'll just pee in it myself. And I put a camera on it and come to find out I came back and there was bucks hitting that camera. Now, you know, I might've had a three-year-old on there and that was probably the oldest deer. So it depends on like, you know, what you're hunting too, but I had bucks hitting it. They didn't, it didn't like scare deer away. So, um, yeah, I do pee out of the tree. And I don't think it really bothers him. Now, Casey, he will not pee out of the tree and won't pee in the area of his stands. And that's just his prerogative. Um, if there is a, a source of water around or, you know, a little creek or drainage or something, then we'll pee in that. And uh, I guess that's kind of the extent of it, really. Um, but, yeah. yeah, I will let her fly out of the tree. <laughs> yeah, and I... To each their own. I mean, there. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this. I mean, unless you want to find scientific studies, but it's whatever you believe. Like again, just taking those factors out of your mind that either are going to affect your hunt or limit your success. You know, don't do it. If you don't care, then let it rip. <laughs> right, for sure. All right, moving on. Next one. So Tyler writes in and says. How do you stay focused on all day sits? Um, oh, I guess man. I'll I'll uh, I'll start this one, and it's I think it could be different for anybody. Um, I'm the type of person that I have patience for certain. I have I have patience for certain things, and I'm very I have very short patience for a lot of things. I guess if that makes sense. Like for some reason, I can sit in a bow stand all day. Um, I do look at my phone a lot. That is, you know, one thing, whether I'm on social media or I'm reading articles or, you know, just one thing or another, I will look at my phone a lot. And, but to stay focused, I guess it, it could be situational too. Um, if I know there's a big deer in the deer in the area or, you know, that's kind of can keep me focused. Cause you just never know when he might step out. And, you know, this year in Iowa, I mean, we were basically putting in all day sits that whole week we were there. I mean, we'd we'd leave maybe one day for for an hour at the most, but um, knowing yep. at that point, I knew there was a lot of big deer in the area. So, like I said, I was I was on my game the whole time, just like surveying all over. And honestly, when when it gets boring, 
one thing I've done, especially if I'm in the timber or something, is I'll just start randomly glassing and just trying to pick out things through the timber. You know, and I've actually picked out deer before way off in the timber. And it's like, whoa, you know, I would have never saw that deer if I just wasn't glassing. And, you know, I I, I do that a lot and just try to, you know, you can get better at glassing too. So it's like almost practicing in a way, but that's kind of how I, I go about it and how I try to stay focused and having snacks. You got to have some snacks. So stay focused that way as well. Definitely snacks. Yeah, for me, it's I'm just as guilty of the phone thing. Um, <laughs> I'm usually, if it's a slow day, my phone's usually dead by about one in the afternoon. Uh, it's it's pretty bad, <laughs> but it's I'm like you. I I try to study the surroundings so much, like just visually. I want to say like photographic memory, but let's face it, you've only got a certain field of view. That's your primary field of view from a tree stand. And after the first four hours, maybe five hours, you, you kind of know exactly where every single tree is. And then the moment something's out of place, your eye just picks it up. And it could be a deer, a coyote, or a squirrel, or whatever. But um, for me, it's it's I'm not really studying that stuff. It's just I try to just blend in with with the scene, you know, and just take it in and just try to. I feel like I'm like being the Zen master right now or something, but I just try to, I just try to become part of that scene, a part of that landscape. And just when something doesn't look right anymore, it's usually an animal. Yep. I agree. You know, just trying to familiarize yourself with every, all your surroundings around you, because like you said, you know, you never know when you might see the ass end of a deer or a tail flick. And it's like, how the heck did that deer get there? You know? And yeah, just familiarizing yourself with it and and uh yeah i mean it it is it is boring don't get me wrong you know if you can stay comfortable with your clothing and your stand or whatever you're sitting in um and you know you got some snacks (laughs) and and you got your phone like you'll be all right i would try to like limit the phone as much as you can like like you said i'm guilty like i'll be on it all the time i'm not gonna lie to you and uh you know, you might miss a few deer. It might cost you. Um, I've never had my phone cost me a deer, so that's good. But um, you always, yeah. you know, deer movement always can either. go in waves too. You know, you always get that wave in the morning, then maybe like a mid-morning, and then usually midday usually is kind of slower. So, so in, oh, in a lot sure. of sense. But <laughs> Yep. Um, all right, next one. So James writes in and says, this one kind of goes with the question a little bit before here when we talked about mobile sets to set stands. And he yep. says, when you're set, and this is going to be for you because I don't do a lot of this. When you're setting up a stand in the morning, how early do you get in to set it up? I, I don't really know what the time frame would be, like off the cuff, but um, I, I honestly try to get in there. If I have it scouted out, if I'm going in in the dark, well, let me back up. First of all, I, I probably wouldn't be going in there in the dark for the first time. Um, I want to go in there ahead of time, either do a ground hunt the afternoon before or at least have some kind of uh, history with this piece of property or this piece of ground and at least know how the terrain lies. And, you know, I'm not going to go in blind for the first time in the dark and tell myself, I'm just going to give myself an extra two hours and go for it. 
um, <clears throat> if I if I know where I'm going and you know what my intention is, I actually like to get in there to where I make all that noise like in the blue light of the morning, and by the time I'm all set up and said and done. I'm I'm strapped in, cameras up, and the bows in the tree arrow knocked. Like I want that to be all done just as it's getting light out. I I don't personally like to sit there and say I'm gonna let it calm down for 45 minutes. Uh, to me, that's just 45 more minutes that your scent is lingering through the woods, and you know your <clears throat> the sweat's evaporating, your thermals are are falling or rising, rising I guess, but. I I have seen way too many times where deer hear those noises and are actually a little bit curious and they'll actually come and investigate it as opposed to blow out of there. Um, it happened to me this year on an afternoon hunt, but uh, the, the deer that I wish I would have shot this year actually came in at that exact time. So it's uh, is it coincidence? Maybe, but maybe not. I don't know. I just I just know that there is a level of curiosity that every whitetail has, buck or doe, old or young, that if they hear that noise, you know, it's just it's just tree bark or yes, there might be metal clanging if you're if you're trying to hurry, but I I don't like to give it too much time to settle down. Right. I like to be right there and ready to go as soon as I'm done. I want to be seeing what's around me. Yep. And for you know, my way to answer this is I've, I can be totally honest with you. I've never went in in the morning and set up a stand and hunted it that morning. My whole train of thought was, or is still like, I like to tiptoe in there as slowly and as quietly as I can, um, and get to the stand. And I like to climb it and lat you know, uh, put my harness in and, and latch in or whatever and I just like to sit there and just listen. Um, yeah. And and one thing I do with the main farm, my one acre farm, since the timber's so small, um, I like to just creep in early. I like to get in like cover of darkness because when I'm going in, I'm go- I'm usually going on the edge of fields or through a field, which a lot of people say, ah, he, why are you going through the field? You know, when it's in the morning, you're kicking deer out. Well, I'm trying to use the darkness to my advantage as long as I have the wind. I mean, I've bumped deer where I know I can hear them running into the timber. Um, They can't see me because it's like pitch black dark, and I know they can't smell me, but they'll bound into the woods. I've literally walked by them, got up my stand really quiet, and then they'll walk underneath me at first light. I've done it numerous times. So, yeah. And, and that doesn't mean I'm not busting out the biggest deer and I don't know about it because obviously I can't see it or maybe I'm only hearing other deer. I'm not saying that I'm bulletproof doing that, but that is just my train of thought. Um, I know it's going to take me probably another 30 minutes, 40 minutes maybe in the cover of darkness and you're using a headlamp. I don't like to use a lamp, uh, a light, a lamp or nothing if I don't have to. So I just like to get yeah, in there that's... and try to be as low key as I can. And that's why I like to do the set stand as well. So um, I guess that's my two cents on that. But, I mean, there's a lot of guys that do that. I mean, a lot of your, you know, old coworkers for Midwest Whitetail, I mean, they love that stuff, getting in there early, hanging a stand and hunting, and they're pretty successful at it. Yeah, they are. I mean, 
I mean, Jared Mills, that's, that's his, that's his MO. He's, he's a hang and bang master. Yeah. He <laughs> I mean, is. I've, I've been on his farm with him a few times and I, I know he has a few permanent sets, but I think the more that you can adapt to that, not just the landscape, but to the animal in the way it uses the landscape, obviously the more successful you're going to be. And, um, I can think of one time where I hunted with Jared. I was filming for him, and he actually went to a stand that was pre-hung. And even then, we had to hang my stand. So, <laughs> <laughs> yep, for sure. I don't know. I'm I'm a fan of the mobile. All right, let's move on. The next question is: How do you slow down the moment of truth? So they're asking, you know, when that buck or that animal is within distance, and you're going to full draw. How do you slow down basically buck fever? What is, uh, what is your task list or what, what do you do? Uh, for me, it's, there's two things for me. I, I try to really focus on the deer's body language. I try to read if, if he's alert, uh, if he's nervous, if he has any clue that I'm there, you know, watch his tail, watch his ears, just watch the way his eyes move, how he moves his neck. That's going to help me anticipate you know, him jumping the string or, or ducking, um, it's going to help me know where, better where to aim. Once I establish what his, his mood is or his attitude, you know, what that body language is telling me, I mean, I'm telling you, like, I probably have the worst target panic of anybody that you could ever talk to. So my focus is literally on how far away is he? What, what, what was the range of that tree? And what pin is that? What pin do I use? <laughs> and, after that, it's 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 the process of pulling the trigger. I, I'm terrible about punching the trigger, and I, I I admit it, and I I wish I wasn't that way. But um, as soon as I can identify the deer's body language and figure out how fast I have to process everything else, that usually either makes it a heck of a lot better for me to control, or a lot worse. If I feel like it's worse and I'm rushing it, then obviously I'm probably not going to take the shot. Yep. I got you. So do you initially talk yourself through anything or is it just more, you know, just reading that body language and, you know, kind of letting, letting that feeling like you've, you know, you've been here before that kind of takes over like a muscle memory kind of thing. No, I honestly, I don't feel like there's much, I mean, I, and I know there is, but it's not something that's like intuitive to me. It just doesn't just kick in and take over. I have to physically tell myself like draw when he goes behind that tree, that tree was 28 yards. He's going to step out two steps to expose the vital. He's going to be 29 yards, 30 yard pin. You know, I, I literally have to talk myself through the shot process, but it's a matter of how fast that happens. Depends on what that body language is telling me. Okay. So mine is a little different, but there are some similarities. First thing is, you know, just go shoot some deer. <laughs> uh, you know, just get does, you know, bucks, whatever it is. I always say just go shoot some deer and get some deer under your belt because I feel like that's like, you know, you're on a sports team or a, a basketball team or a football team where it's like that's your practice. That's You can practice all you want in, in the yard on flat ground from a tree stand with your gear on all you want. It does help, I feel like, but nothing can simulate the real thing. 
And that's why I like to go in and as early as I can, I try to. It never happens every year just because I find myself in one situation or another. I try to go in and kill a doe early just so it's like that confidence booster, you know, and it's, okay, I I can do this. You know, I haven't done this in 11 months, but I I can do it again. You know, I've been here, so I like to do that. Um, But as as much as talking myself through things – I don't know if I do. One thing I am I do a lot of is when I'm sitting in the tree is I try to visualize deer coming from a lot of different angles and what will I do. Okay, so if there's a deer that comes from this angle or from this runway or from the north and he's going, you know, southeast or, or southwest, what am I going to do in that scenario? I play thousands of scenarios through my head to hopefully, like, simulate in a way like, okay, what am I going to do here? I'm going to stop him there or, you know, that, that tree's, you know, 20 yards. I can take him there. I can't shoot him there. And that's something we do with filming too. I mean, if we have someone filming us or if I'm filming Casey or Chris or something, we always talk it through like, okay, can you see right here? I can't see there. You can see that. Okay. I can get him there. You can't get him there. So I really like to do that as well. And, you know, when the moment of truth comes, comes, it's just, I black out so much that it's like I don't even a lot of times remember what happens. You know, it just I feel like my body kind of takes over and just does it knows what to do and just it just does it, I guess. I I don't know, that's the best yeah. way I can answer it. No, I wish I wish I could say that that's how things worked for me, but I I know how bad I panic when I'm about to pull the trigger and I have to literally remind myself to breathe and not punch the trigger. Don't punch it. Don't punch it. Don't punch it. So it's, <laughs> I, I don't know what to do to fix that. And I yep. know like a lot of people say, go to the, go to that hinge style release and take the trigger out of the equation and learn how to control that. But maybe that's, maybe that's true. I just, what I'm doing right now works for me and can it get better? Sure can always get better but well the way i look at it too is you're you're you've been pretty successful so just keep doing what you're doing (laughs) so (laughs) yeah it's it's hard to it's that's the thing it's it's hard to try something new when what you're doing works yep i i get it all right let's move on we got two more i'm gonna jump down to these last two here um and i think you got it in front of you as well we're gonna start with uh the one from jordan Jordan says, do you use a dog to shed hunt? Um, and you were shed hunting today, so I don't know. I'll let you kick yeah, this one off. No, I I don't. I mean, I took the dogs out today when I was shed hunting, but they're not shed dogs. But uh, the best shed dog I know is Cooper Long, the intern from the couch, <laughs> <laughs> back from the early early days of the podcast. But um, I, I know there's benefits to that, and honestly, if I – if I end up with property in Iowa or if I'm in a better position to to really put more effort into shed hunting, I would be interested in seeing what it takes to train a dog to do that and actually, you know, evolving with that process. But uh, as of right now, I do not. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same way. When we go out shed hunting, I take the dog. Um, she loves antlers, but she's never been trained to 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 shed hunt, you know, to smell them, sniff them out, and find them. I would, I would, yep. I would bet to say if she, you know, 
would come up on a shed, she would know what it was and she'd grab it like, but she's not a shed dog either. She's a chocolate lab and just likes to run around. So I don't use a shed dog either. Same kind of way. Like I love to shed hunt, but here in Michigan, I've found very few sheds in my lifetime. Um, I have buddies that find a lot of sheds in Michigan and every year, but, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that just shed hunt here is I like to shed hunt, but it's not like a, a big priority for me because I don't find a ton of them. And I don't have a lot of late season food that I feel like I could find a lot. You know, I have found a few, you know, because my family farm, I've got a lot of thermal cover. So we will go walk that. And we yeah. found a few over the years in there. But uh, I have hunt, shed hunted with a dog before, not mine. Um, one time I shed hunted with a dog and out in Missouri and it was fun like the dog it, it's pretty cool to watch him work it's just like a pheasant dog you know it, it, it's really cool to watch a good dog work and I could definitely see the benefits to it like you said you know you you can cover more of an area I feel like if it's just you and the dog um, you know a lot of times yeah. you could you have your friends with you too but uh, I could definitely see uh, an advantage there but no I you know I'm just not big big enough into it that uh that i feel like you know i need a shed dog or or something like that so yeah I, i'm kind of the same same boat you are so the next question jeremy asked what is the most important aspect to postseason scouting so i feel like this one could be a hard question and for me i'll start it off for me it's i think it changes year to year but you know on my family farm I'm trying to get into areas that I never go in to try to figure out what deer movement is in there. You know, maybe trying to find new bedding areas or bedding areas that I don't even know about. Try to get close to that. And then really just trying to hone in on where deer are moving because with the snow on the ground, I really like to figure out. Now it does change a little bit because late season to, you know, early season, then rut, it, that will change. But still, I feel like deer are going to be moving in relatively the same areas and be using the same topography all the time because topography doesn't change. You know, like your hills and your saddles and your, you know, stuff like that, that won't change. So I feel like deer are going to use those regardless. But um, that's more of like a big timber setting for me. But on like a farm country, you know, it varies every year because the last two off seasons for me were all straight hinge cutting and trying to make a better bedding area and trying to funnel deer more into one area. So that was kind of what I was honing in on more there this year, a little bit of the same, but I'm, I'm doing a lot of driving around and figuring out where the deer are yarding up on my farm. Cause I can see from a long way away and yeah. seeing how they're using the food right now. So, and I know we're in, you know, February right now, but that food for next year, you know, in late season and end of November and December could be, you know, a good late season resource. So I'm just trying to figure out where they're coming out of the timber, you know, and like I said, those topographies, those, those, those things don't change. So I might find some areas where I like to get into and I might find something new where I want to put a stand for next year. So I like to do that. And when I do find a good trail coming out of a timber, maybe into a field or a transition in between, you know, bedding and food, 
I will actually take a piece of ribbon and and I'll hang it in a tree, you know, right where that trail was. So then when the snow does melt, I get a you know a refresher. I can go back and figure out a stand location there and hang a stand. So if that makes sense, that's kind of hopefully I answered his question there. But that's that's kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah, you you also could just drop a pin on base map and leave the ribbon out of the equation. Just I saying. could. I really could. I mean, that is a <laughs> good point. Now that I have base map, I could definitely do that. <laughs> Sorry, I had, I had to throw that in there. I'm a hard um, copy guy. Yeah. I'm, I I I like the I like the hard copy. I still write on, you know, paper and and a pencil. I like doing that. So <laughs> Yeah. No, I know. I hear you. Um for me, this is about learning more about the public ground I'm hunting. Uh, I've I will admit that when it comes to scouting public land, I'm I'm a little bit lazy. I will I'll usually go back into a place that I've had a, an encounter or a good experience with in the past, and I'll just start I'll start from there and then hunt it out, and I'll just push either you know further in or I'll adjust the stand location based on what I see, you know, from hunt to hunt. Because, uh, like I said, I'm usually packing in and out every day, every night. But, um, <clears throat> like you mentioned earlier, I was shed hunting today, actually, and I was in the same piece of public ground that I killed my buck on this year. And that was kind of my main goal was to go in there and just walk around and actually see what was in the area that these deer, you know, where they were coming from when I saw them. And what's beyond the ridge, like in the direction that they were going. Like, I want to know why they were where they were when I saw them, where they came from, and what was in that direction of travel, you know, that they were headed when I did see them, uh, or when I when I couldn't see them anymore, for that matter. So, um, I guess to answer the question bluntly, the most important thing uh, in post seeding post season scouting for me is to understand the travel across that topography and and is it the topography itself that funneled them through there the way that they did or is it like you said bedding to food or what's the what's the reason that the deer kept going there because for the majority of the time they would go the same same way come from the same direction and going to the same direction so um I'm going to try to not be as lazy as I have been in the past. I, <laughs> I have every intention of, of being in Iowa for the 2020 season. So um, I had, like I said, I, I killed my buck in this spot last year. I had a really good encounter with a big mature nine point in there last year. So I, I know the deer are using it and it's, I, I know there's a ton of deer in there. It's all oak trees. It's big ridges and deep ravines and just a lot of places for deer to hide, to sneak through. So um, I only walked it today for an hour and a half, and I, I I marked out four more stand locations just on that little walk within a 500-yard radius of the tree I actually killed out of. So Nice. Um, it's It was just a learning experience. So that's – that's I, I don't push it during the season. I don't want to go in there and put all that scent on the ground and push deer around. I'll adjust my set accordingly based on the hunts day-to-day, but um, – for me, the biggest takeaway in postseason scouting is is just learning the area better. Yeah, and I guess I probably did a more complicated answer to just say about the same thing. <laughs> go no, in areas right. <laughs> where you where you usually don't go. That's and just try to figure out the movement from there. So that just to sum that up and get off that question, I did yeah. lie to you and lied to everybody though. 
because I did say that was the last question, I believe, but we actually do have one more that I missed. So okay. <laughs> let's get to this one and then we'll wrap it up. So this guy's asking, what is the first thing you do when you are hunting a new piece of ground or when you acquire a new piece of ground? So what is the first thing that Justin Fabian does when you figure out you have a new piece of ground to go hunt? I'm pulling out base map. I'm going to, I'm going to e-scout the crap out of that thing. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to try to figure out, well, let me, let me back up. I'm still using base map for this, but depending on when I acquire that piece of land, I'm either going to shed hunt it like crazy, cover every inch and look for every bit of sign, just full intrusion once be done with it, have a visual, you know, a, a blueprint in my brain and get out of there. You might come out with some sheds if it's the right time of the year, but um, otherwise I'm going to, I'm going to take the slow approach. I'm going to make a conscious decision based on, on food sources, edge habitat, you know, mature timber stands, ridges. And I've just, I've had so much luck in all those deep, dark, nasty holes. Like, you know, Wisconsin's full of it. There's a lot of it here uh, in the piece that I'm hunting in Iowa, just those deep ravines that are just so nasty and, you know, deer can can get in and out of that stuff without being seen. Uh, I'm going to look for those things. And then uh, the first time I hunt that, I'm going to the best spot. I'm going in guns blazing because I am a firm, firm believer that the highest odds you're going to have to be successful on your target deer are the first time into that stand. So I'm going into the best spot with the highest hopes first hunt of the year that's where i'm going heck yeah i i agree so if i acquire a piece of ground the first thing i'm doing is pulling out a map um pulling out a map and i'm putting icons in as many places where i think that i can get a stand in just from e-scouting so once i do that then i go boots on the ground and i will go right to those spots so I'll go to the, the icons right away, and I kind of work from from that point back, if that makes sense. So I'll get to that tree or that area where I want to be, and then I'll really dissect it from there. I'll look at that, look at the terrain, and then start eliminating or you know making a pros and cons list, basically. Is this going to be the spot that I need to be in? Is this need to be the spot that I need to be in because of these things? Um, so I'll work from there. So then, and then I'll kind of rate them like, okay, this is this could happen definitely, or maybe this might be an early season, or this is a rut spot, and then keep going from there. And I I just work back from there. But the first thing is is e scouting. I don't think you could do enough of it. Honestly, my one acre farm, you know, I've said it before. There's only one acre of timber on it, and there's four acres of timber on the other piece. So five acres of total timber. It's flatter than a pancake, but I was in bed last night looking at base map for some odd reason. <laughs> I'm just looking, you know, it, literally you're looking at four acres of timber or five acres of timber, and you're like, what else could you be missing? I've been in the timber a lot. I know what every tree is. I know where it's at, but... I'm just looking for something else. Like, I feel like I'm always missing something. So, you know, and it might, something might be sticking out to you. Uh, 
from an aerial map. I don't know. Um, it might just trigger something like, okay, I need to get in there and figure that out again. Even though I walked by that tree a hundred times, you never know. Um, I'm always looking at a map, base map, to figure out where I need to go and what I need to do. Um, so that that kind of sums it up for me. I think that's probably well. The only thing we didn't touch on was cameras and and recon, but I mean that's I think that's kind of inherent. You'll get to that point. Yeah, when yep. you start mapping all that stuff out. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, that's, that's an awesome. That's an awesome question. Like that's that could be an entire podcast in itself answering that question. For sure, I agree, and I think you know some of these questions we might do some spinoffs of and. I know there's a couple I want to get to. There's some other listeners submitted questions I knew we weren't going to be able to get to in an hour, but um, one guy actually wrote in and and wanted to know about like a killing tree. Like he talked about year after year, do you have a tree that is just like produces? And after I got to think about it, hundred percent on on my family farm, it it might not be me. But we have, you know, 10 other guys that hunt that farm. Somebody kills in that tree almost every year with the bow. So yeah, I kind of want to break down that scenario or maybe even figure out somebody we can bring on that does that. You know, it would be cool to find someone out there. So if anybody listening to this knows anybody, or it could be you, if you have a killing tree that, you know, year after year it just produces, and maybe you don't kill, but you get opportunities in that tree every year, write us let us know i'd like to have someone on to talk about that i think it'd be a really cool podcast and uh it's just one of those things that's a little different that i think uh, i find so intriguing there's actually a film in the badlands film festival this year about a tree like that it's actually a really good film the entire thing takes place in one scene at this tree you should you should look it up i will for sure that's cool awesome man well let's let's cut this thing loose here and we're a little over an hour, and we've just been rambling on. Probably yep. lost a lot of subscribers, but hey, <laughs> we're just trying to do our part. <laughs> yeah, so. it's my first time back in a long time. Yeah, it is. <laughs> we got some good uh, podcasts coming up. We got some good guests coming up, and uh, I'm excited to get into it. So, thanks for joining, man. Yeah, I appreciate a... you coming on and doing this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry it's taken so long, but I'll I'll be fair with you and tell you that. Uh, between now and May 10th, I've got potential for, th- for three more filming trips and then uh, two more trade shows. So I might get a little thin here again uh, after the first week of March. That's all right. We well, might just have to find a replacement. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I'm kidding. Someone with more hair. A little. Well, you got enough Bald. hair on your face, so. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, cool, man. All right, Manuel. Good catching up with you. You too. And if everybody could please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and leave some feedback, that'd be greatly appreciated. Thank you again for all the support on the fall podcast and, you know, the social media channels. That's, it means a lot to us and, you know, it just gives us more motivation to, not that we need motivation, but it just gives us more, you know, motivation to get out there and get better guests and get more content for you guys. So thank you very much. Don't forget this Thursday on the Kiefer Brothers underscore Humanimal YouTube channel. We will have a new episode up there, so go check that out. Go to Base Maps YouTube, subscribe, help them out as well. It's a really cool app. Buy it. There is a free version, but buy it to get their best version and uh, figure that stuff out too. So 
Thank you guys for listening, and we will see you next week. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.